And we're going to read the first nine verses of Joshua chapter 1. We'll pray and we'll dig in a bit. Joshua chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea, for the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous. For you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. And do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Let's pray. Father God, we ask that as we look forward uh, to this series in Joshua, that you would give us a heart that's receptive to hear your word, that you would give it to us this morning, that we would be able to take these words that were penned so many hundreds of years ago, thousands of years ago, and see how they are directly relevant to us today. God, we pray that you would move us to be strong and courageous, even as you moved and exhorted your servant Joshua to do the same. I pray for myself to be faithful to your words and speak only what you would have for me. In Christ's name, I pray and we pray. Amen. You guys can be seated. So I said, we're going we're gonna to jump into Joshua 1, and we're going to work our way through the book. By the way, if you haven't already, um, and you want to join our f- group on faithlife.com, probably not right now, but when you get home or whatever, um, one of the things that we can do up there is, is put up like Bible reading plans, and so we can read together, and so I put together a plan that takes us through Joshua at the same pace of the sermon series, so you can read the passage uh, before you get here. So, crazy idea. But, so check that out, faithlife.com, uh, search for us. But we're looking in Je- uh, Joshua chapter 1, and before we dig in too far, I want to set the stage a little bit, um, especially for those who maybe not have seen all of that Scripture has, have not read everything in the Old Testament. And what we have here is we have Joshua in charge of the Israelites, and they're standing at the eastern bank of the Jordan River. And they're about to cross the Jordan River, into the land of Canaan and take possession of it. 
Now, if you know the, the stories of Scripture, you know that this is an incredibly important moment in the life of the nation of Israel. This land of Canaan had been promised to Abraham, the father of the Jewish people, hundreds of years before this. And you know that God had promised to Abraham that he wouldn't give it to him directly, but it would be given to him and to his sons uh, as an inheritance. And we know that over the course of history, there was a great famine that broke out in the land. The Israelites wound up in Egypt, and then political winds shifted in Egypt, and they wound up being slaves in Egypt. God heard their cries and rescued them out of the hands of the Egyptians through many signs and wonders. Took them across the Red Sea where he drowned the armies of Pharaoh and began to make their way toward the land of Canaan where God had promised to deliver them to. But something unfortunate happened along the way. If you know the story, you know that Moses was informed of an idea that they should send out some spies into the land to find out what it was like, figure out where the weak points were, the strengths were, the good things about the land, the bad things about the land, in preparation for what was necessarily going to be a military conquest. Thought this was a good idea. And so they sent out 12 spies into the land of Israel, and they come back and they say, hey, the land that God has given us is, in fact, a good land. But those spies said, but you know what? The people there are really strong. They're really powerful. And there's no way that we have a chance against them. And so the people of Israel were incited to fear. And they were incited to not go forward. Now two spies, a guy named Joshua and a guy named Caleb, had a different report. They said, no, this is, this is good. They are strong, but we believe that God is able to take care of business. But the people didn't listen to them. And so, as a result, God was angry with, with Israel, told them that they would be required to wander uh, in the wilderness for a period of 40 years for that generation to die out. They got a little angsty. They, they kind of had a false repentance, and they decided, whoa, 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 whoa. Okay, God, if you're not going to take us in there, we'll do it ourselves. We'll, we'll go, we'll go. God already told them, don't go. What happens is they go in through the, the south, they get defeated in battle, and they find that there's no way in. And that's why, if you have a little bit of understanding of geography, you'd think that from Egypt, you just march south right into Canaan, uh, the, what we consider the land of Israel today, and that was closed to them because of their disobedience and their sin. And so they wandered the wilderness for 40 years, come in from around to the east, conquer some lands to the east of the Jordan River, and now they stand at the banks of the Jordan River. Moses has died, the man who has led them for those 40 years, the man who was known as a friend of God, the man who is known uniquely as the servant of Yahweh, and he's gone. And God has tapped Joshua to lead the Israelites at this point on. And that's where our text picks up. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. All right. 
you get the idea that Moses' death was a little bit important. Right? I think Joshua knew it. He, he was well aware that Moses was dead. But God wanted to reinforce the idea to him. He's gone. He's not coming back. He has no force ghost that's going to lead you. This is, this is it. You are all that we have, Joshua. We're putting this on your plate now. You were his assistant. Now, therefore, arise. Go over this Jordan. You and all this people into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. And you sense a couple things here. First of all, we sense that Moses was incredibly important to the Israelites. He's the servant of Yahweh. Uh, Joshua is known only as his assistant. You had a, got a sense of potential inferiority. Is Joshua going to have the strength? Is Joshua going to have what's necessary to continue to lead the Israelite people? And, and I think we often feel that way, don't we? We often have a sense that maybe I'm not adequate to do the job. And, and the text is taking us in that place, putting us in Joshua's shoes and saying, hey, this mere assistant, putting the question before us, is this mere assistant going to have what it takes to fill Moses' shoes? But Yahweh is confident. Yahweh says, every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised Moses. From the wilderness, which is the southern border, and this Lebanon, which would have been the mountains of Lebanon in the north, would have been the northern border. As far as the great river, the river Euphrates, which would have been the northeastern border, the eastern border would have been desert. The land of the Hittites, all the land of the Hittites, to the Great Sea, the Mediterranean, would be their western boundary. For the going down of the sun shall be your territory. So here, God is reiterating to Joshua what he has told the Israelites through Moses, what he told the Israelites before they were even Israelites to Abraham. This land is going to be yours. I am reconfirming the promise to you, Joshua, that I made to Moses, that I made to your people, that I made to your forefathers, and I'm telling you that it's good and it's true for you also. And no man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. This is an interesting promise here in this scripture because it's singular. It's a singular promise. No man will be able to stand against Joshua. And that's one of those things that, that unfortunately, in English, the you and the you, whether it's singular or plural, are the same. And so sometimes that doesn't come out in our study. But here he's saying, no man will be able to stand against you, Joshua. If you remember the stories of Moses and the Israelites, and there many times Moses' authority was challenged. And there were times when his ability to continue to lead the Israelites was going to be called into question. But God was with him, and eventually and inevitably, no man was able to stand against Moses. You can imagine, if you put yourself in Joshua's shoes for just a moment, the hundreds of thousands of Israelites who have lost their famed and famous and beloved leader, you might have some doubts in your soul about whether or not 
these masses are going to continue to follow you? What if one of them launches a rebellion against me? They rebelled against Moses, they'll rebel against me, won't they? I imagine that I would have fears. I imagine that I would have doubts. I imagine that I'd have concerns. And so Yahweh, the God of the Israelites, the God of all creation, says, no one will stand against you, Joshua. All the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. Remember how I stood by Moses? You remember how I never let him down? You remember when Moses worried? You were his aide. You were by his side. Remember when he would lament that the people were not following me and I took care of it? Do you remember those times, Joshua? Just like I was with Moses, I will be with you. And this great promise that we have heard and we have probably remembered from the book of Hebrews, and maybe we didn't realize how ancient it was, I will not leave you or forsake you. So here we have in the first five verses is this basic charge to Joshua. You're going to get up. You're going to go. The Israelites are going to follow you. You're going to take this land, and you don't need to worry because I am with you. Without being able to reiterate everything I said last week, I believe that we are at the precipice of some amazing opportunities here in Cleveland and at Gateway Church downtown. And I believe that God is with us. And I'll tell you why in a second. I'm going to get to that. But I believe that God is with us. I believe He will not leave us or forsake us. I believe He will be with us like He was with Moses, like He was with Joshua. And I believe that there is something that he wants to accomplish with us. As we look at Joshua chapter 1, we notice that one of the key ideas here is this idea of land. The land is a huge issue throughout the Old Testament, and you can scarcely put together a sense of what the Old Testament is trying to teach us without understanding the concept of land and how important it was to God's redemptive purposes in the life of Israel. But what we know is that the land was a place that God was going to give his people rest. The land was a place where God was going to preserve his people and rescue his people if they abided in faith. And we know that that land foreshadows for us as Christians the truer and greater rest that we have in Jesus Christ that he is taking us and preparing a place for us where we will be at peace, that we will be at rest, that we will enter even into God's rest as God rested on the seventh day of his creation. So we will enter into his rest if we continue in faith. And so this idea of land here, while it was a very physical reality, it also had enormous spiritual realities too. It was a place of promise. It was a place where God's word would be made good. A place where faithfulness to God meant blessings for his people. So get up and go, Joshua. 
But then we turn to verses 6 through 9. And the theme changes a little bit. And we have it right here in verse 6. Be strong and courageous. For you will cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous. Being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. Let's pause there on this idea of being strong and being courageous. These are two words that often appear together in the Old Testament Scriptures, strength and courage. And we probably read into them a sense of be strong, be courageous, because you're about to go into battle, Joshua. You're about to take the sword, and you're about to go into war, go into battles, go into the, the slaughtering of your enemies. So it's a pretty brutal picture, Bronze Age warfare. Um, and, and so we're, we're probably hearing, be strong and be courageous because you're about to do battle. But if we look closely, that's not really what God is telling Joshua to be strong and to be courageous about. If we look closely, we see that being strong and being courageous is tied first to inheriting the land that I swore their fathers to give them. In what way, God? Verse 7, only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. See, this, this term that we often translate courageous certainly can mean courageous, but it also has overtones of resoluteness, steadfastness, commitment. God has commanded Joshua to go. He has commanded the Israelites to go, and he has guaranteed them a certain result. But where they need strength and courage is not to go into the face of their enemies with a sword. They need strength and courage to keep God's law. I don't think that that's too different than where we stand today. There's a lot of people who will volunteer to take up a rifle and, and, and join the armed forces and, and, and fight for our country, and yet at the same time are fearful to do what's right in the face of opposition. Fearful to do what would please Jesus when someone might laugh, when someone might scoff. There's those of us who would uh, defend someone's cause at the, on the street in the, at the threat of personal violence against us, and yet we're afraid to even speak the name of Jesus. And so, it wasn't a strength and courage for battle that Joshua needed. It was a strength and courage to maintain faith in the face of of temptation coming from every direction. The land of Canaan was a... 
somewhat pluralistic society. It was a pagan society. It was filled with false gods by various names, Molech and Baal and Asherah. Gods that had really interesting ways of being worshipped. Some of those ways of being worshipped might have been more interesting to the Israelites. Fertility gods who employed all kinds of interesting activities at their temples that Yahweh, the Lord, the God of the Israelites, would not condone. But they might have been enticing. In a world, in a society that generally said, your God is as good as our God, whose God is really the better God, will tell you what, on this land, if you worship this God this way, good things happen to you. We might not call them Baal, we might not call them the Asherot, but tell me that that's not very much different from where we stand today. Where everyone has an idea of what God is and who God is. And your idea of God is no better or worse than my idea of God, but if you follow God this way or that way that our culture dictates, it'll be better for you. you have more peace. You'll have more resolve. No one's going to get upset at you if you worship God this way. If you love a very tolerant and accepting God, if, if, if your, your God is very PC, if, if your God follows all of the cultural mandates, it doesn't say anything particularly offensive. Things will go better for you. And so Joshua and the Israelites needed a strength and a courage to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left that you may have success wherever you go. It's not a problem to obey God's law. It's a problem to obey all of God's law. It's a difficulty to obey the parts that are hard. The ways that fly in the face of culture. And we know that from history, the Israelites would fall into this trap. So, for instance, we, we have found in archaeological digs where they worship Yahweh, but they make Yahweh into a bull or a cow, and, and, and they worship him at a pagan temple. So they, they were able to maintain the Yahweh part, but then they twisted it and cultivated it into something that was more acceptable to the culture around them. It's easy to follow the parts of the law that our culture says are good. It's hard to follow God's word when our culture says it's not good. And that's where we need more strength and more courage than it takes to pick up a sword or a gun. If Joshua would do this, he'll have success wherever he went. And so God commands them, the book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. There's a connection here. There's a connection between meditating on the law and being able to follow it. 
Now, let me back up one second here, because if you were around the second half of last year, you heard me preach through Galatians, you'll say, okay, but, but, but Chris, you said we're not under law. Laws don't make us right with God. We're under grace, and we're made right by grace. And you're right. We are not made right with the God of the universe by the things we do, by our religious obedience and by uh, following very carefully crafted legal codes. That doesn't make us right with God. But, and we talked about this at the time, the Scriptures are also clear that if we are bought by God's grace and rescued by the blood of Jesus, we are changed by His Spirit to become people who desire to obey God. Not that we'll be perfect at it, and that obedience isn't what makes us right with God, but we are moved to be obedient to God. And in being moved to obedience, we're also given power by His Spirit to help us in that endeavor. And so, it's the Holy Spirit, we are gradually becoming more and more holy as we become more and more like the image of His Son, Jesus. So, obedience is important. It's not what makes us right with God, but it's how we love God. It's how we serve God. So clarifying that, what does he mean then if we meditate on it day and night? Well, first of all, let's take out the Eastern idea of meditation. You scrap your, um, your Beatles-influenced, Hinduistic, Buddhistic idea of meditation. That's not what the ancient Israelites had an idea of meditation. But what meditation meant for the Israelites meant, first of all, yes, thinking about, focusing on, not an emptying of your mind, but thinking about the things of God, thinking about who He is, His character, what He's done, and what He's said in His Word. And it's also not, we think of meditation as sort of a silent reflection. But notice that um, God says that the book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. And that's because meditation was a vocal process. You used your mouth. At the, at the very least, most people in this day and age, they, they didn't read well. In fact, until very recent centuries, it was very rare for a person to, we say, read in your head. If you read, you read aloud because you just weren't that good a reader. Um, there's a, a story of uh, someone noticing Constantine. You remember the Emperor Constantine um, of Rome and, and someone noticed him reading a book and his mouth wasn't moving and they were amazed because most people had to at least move their mouth to read because that was just the way it was. So he was obviously incredibly educated or incredibly smart. Um, by that culture's standards. And so for, for Joshua to meditate on God's law meant a reflection on God's character and his actions and his word and also a speaking of those things. Probably reading aloud the words that Moses had penned down as he reflects on their significance and their meaning. And so the connection here is that this type of meditation is necessary for staying within the will of God. 
So as we look ahead to 2016, I think there's an easy application point for us here. Is that are we meditating on God's law? Now keep in mind, God's law at the time was the first five books of the, the Old Testament, more or less, as we have them today. But that was the only scripture there was. But I think it's a fair drawing out that we can include other pieces of scripture in this. Do you meditate on scripture? What is your plan for meditating on scripture? Do you have a plan for meditating on scripture? Because the connection here is obvious. If you are not, if, if the scriptures are departing from your mouth, if you're not meditating on it day and night, then the so that you will be careful to do what is according to all that is written in it probably won't happen. So I'm not a big legalist on this thing, but as I've gotten older, I have learned the value of systems. I have learned... Um, that if I don't have systems, things tend to fall down for me. I'm not a very organized person by nature. Um, so I'm, I'm in the process in my life of slowly building up systems, and then they fail, and then I, I tell myself it's okay. I, I'm, at least I'm, I'm moving toward what I need to be. Um, and, and, you know, I always tried to do, like, these really complex Bible plans uh, in the past, and then they get too complicated, and then I, they break down somewhere in the course of the year, usually like around you know, now in January. Um, so this year I just said, okay, I, 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 in my Bible software, I was able to kind of create my own plan to my own liking, to my own whims, which was kind of cool. And so I, so I crafted my own Bible plan that, that worked for me. But the, but the, but the point is, is that you know, I had a strategy, and I came up with a strategy for what am I going to do to make sure that the, the Scriptures do not depart from my mouth. You don't have to part from my mind on a daily basis. Is that going to make me perfect? No, not by any stretch of the imagination. But I know that I have uh, no ability, really, to uh, be careful to do what's told to me to do in Scripture if I'm not meditating on it. All right? And it's not just the reading, okay? We, we need to have that, that meditation aspect of it, too. And one of the, I think, downfalls of a plan is sometimes, especially if you're a good checklist person, it's like, boom, I checked off my reading for the day. Boom, I checked off my reading for the day. And you never had the reflection on it. And so I would encourage you guys to find a plan. If you haven't found a plan, get a plan. I mean, you can go on version. You can just Google Bible plans. There's all kinds of great stuff out there. Uh, you can do it on Faith Life. You can use uh, Lagos to do it. Um, you can use the Faith Life Study Bible to do it. This is, this is 21st century America. If you can't figure out a plan then we're really just lazy, right? But don't pick out too big a plan that you don't leave yourself time to reflect on it. That you don't take the time to, to be in awe of who God is and what God is doing and what God is saying and why He's saying it in that passage. If you're, if you're this, I'm going to read 17 chapters a day, and then you read 17 chapters a day, and then you've got to go to your next thing, that's probably not going to help you because you need to meditate on it as well. For then you will, he will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Pause there. 
big danger, prosperity, success, obedience. And there's a huge strain in our culture that unfortunately we Americans have passed on to the third world that says if you obey God, you're going to get blessings upon blessings upon blessings and you're going to be rich and you're going to be successful and and that's the way it goes. And that is not necessarily true. I don't even know if that's true a majority of the time, let alone is it a promise or a guarantee. And those who, who tend to preach this, this false gospel that, uh, that obedience to God leads to material prosperity tend to prey on the poor, which is why we've exported it to the third world in South America and Africa and things like that. And it's, a really, it's really perverse. And I'm just glad that vengeance is mine, says the Lord, because there will be, there will be vengeance on this false gospel. But what, what we need to understand is, what do we do then when we see a verse like this that says, um, you will be prosperous and you have good success? First of all, we need to understand that the word here for prosperous and success, again, two words that oftentimes come, con, come in close context with each other, almost never in the Old Testament refer to material blessing in terms of like riches, that type of prosperity. Like one time. One time, and that's a very specific instance. The prosperous here is not prosperous in terms of the pocketbook. It's prosperous in terms of action. It's success in terms of action. They are always connected to having a uh, a goal, to having a godly path that we are to follow in, and having success in accomplishing that godly path. For Joshua, that means inheriting the land, driving out the Canaanites. If he's careful to obey the law, then God will prosper and succeed those activities that are put before him. These are terms that are used of of kings that were not successful and not prosperous. Trust me, they were very rich. But they didn't accomplish what God had for them in their time because of unfaithfulness. Verse 9, Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous, do not be frightened, do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. So Yahweh finishes this charge, finishes this call to Joshua. Be obedient. Meditate on the law. Be careful to do these things. I'm going to be with you. You're going to be successful if you stay close to me. I will stay close to you. Go. So what is it that we are called to do? As I read Joshua 1, 1 through 1-9, I'm struck by its similarity to something maybe a little bit better known. Matthew chapter 28, verses 18-20. through 20. And Jesus came and said to them, 
his disciples, all authority on heaven, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Do you hear the repetition of three very, very important themes? Go! You've got to move. You've got to get up because I am sending you someplace. Two, obey. There's something that you need to dedicate your life to. Three, I am with you. As Joshua was preparing to take the Israelites into the land of Canaan, as Joshua was preparing them to gather their swords for a battle, series of battles, that would be hard. They would be painful. They would be difficult. Perhaps they would be scary. But if they stayed close to Yahweh by being obedient to Him by being by following His, his commands, by, by loving Him and meditating on His character and meditating on His personality and meditating on the things that He has done in this universe, they could stand confident in the promise that He would be with them. So too, Jesus is sending us out. We stand on the, the eastern bank of a river. And he's telling us to go into a strange land. The scriptures tell us that as we stand here, our citizenship is in heaven, not here on earth, ultimately. And so we live as strangers and foreigners in a land that's not our own. And we are given our marching orders not to bear a sword that slays flesh and bones, but to bring the good news, the Word of God, which is the sword of the Spirit, to a battle for the hearts and souls of a world that is desperately separated from Jesus Christ. This world that we have been placed in as Christians that we say is not our home is nonetheless full of people that we want to bring into our home. People who are separated from their Creator just as we were because of our sin. The exact reason why God was willing to drive out the Canaanites was for their sin And yet we will see as we look at the passage for those Canaanites who were willing to turn to God in faith and repentance, they were welcomed in to the fold of the Israelites. We 
we think of the Israelites as sort of like a, a genetically pure people. They're all descendants of Abraham, but they weren't. Some of them were foreigners. Some of them were outsiders who were brought in not because of their bloodline, but because of their faith. And God wants to do that in this world that's not our home. And so Jesus commands us to go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. In order to obey Jesus' command, we have to make disciples. We have to proclaim the good news that though we're separated from God, we can be made near to God again because of what Jesus did on the cross. That the blood of Jesus Christ is enough to cover us of our sins and it was more than enough because He raised again from dead, conquering sin, conquering death, and offering us new life in Him. Something we will commemorate and celebrate in, in the baptism of of three people this morning. We're to baptize those disciples and teach them to observe all that Jesus has commanded. And the only way we know all that Jesus has commanded is if we are meditating on what Jesus has commanded, if we are reflecting on Jesus, if we are digging in to Jesus and and, and, and letting him reveal himself to us in his scriptures and in his words. And that is a task that requires strength and courage. Because I have found that probably nothing makes us Christians more afraid than the idea of telling a dying world that they need this Jesus. We would gladly rather grab a sword. We would gladly rather take up our arms and our hand grenades or our tanks or our fighter planes. We would much rather do that than to tell someone, even someone we know well, about the love of Jesus Christ for them. That's where we need strength. That's where we need courage. And yet we can be encouraged because Jesus, who was God in the flesh himself, gives us this promise, I am with you always to the end of this age. And so, we talked last week, for those who are here, that this is one of our big pushes for 2016, is that we are going to get out of our bubble a little bit, we're going to take our focus, which has been very internal for too long, very inward for too long, and we're going to push that focus out. We're going to push that focus externally. And we'll talk more about that in coming weeks, but we're going to just be very intentional about how we can work together as a church, as a body, as a team to reach the lost of Cleveland, Northeast Ohio, Pittsburgh, and whatever the world he sends us. But for now, let's be strong and courageous. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your promise. 
you will be with us always, even to the end of this age. You've sent Your Spirit so that there's no place that we can go where we are apart from Your presence. Strengthen us and give us courage for what You're calling us to do and calling us to be. May we not be afraid, God, not to take up the the sword of destruction, but the sword of life that is Your Word. May we be people who meditate on Your Word, Your character, Your attributes, as we fall more deeply in love with You. And may that love pour out of us onto all we encounter. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.